Father in heaven, please be with us now as we, as we take a journey that really in one sense could be a discouraging journey if we don't put our eyes in the right place, but help that be the point today that we learn where to keep our eyes and what to see. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is week two. We're talking about the message of the second angel. And it can be a little discouraging because essentially the message is, is that Babylon has fallen. We'll read the actual text here in just a minute. But just so that we have the right context for this, I actually want to step back and I want to talk about the first angel again before we jump into what I want to say about the second angel. So I've told you in the weeks leading up to today, the message of the first angel is the victory of God. The first angel comes to announce the victory of God. So here's the specific words, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So what I've suggested to you is that this first angel announces the victory of God and the three key components of that victory. The very first being the everlasting gospel. This is the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You become a Christian on the day that you were convicted in your heart that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Messiah, prophesied about in Scripture, and the Son of God, and therefore our Savior. When you have believed that, you have become a Christian. It's, we talked about last week the, the ichthus fish, the Greek word ichthus, that perfectly uh, describes that confession, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So when you have believed that, you have become a Christian. This is the everlasting gospel. Why everlasting? Because the impact of that event at one moment in time goes both ways to infinity. It, it goes all the way back to take care of everything that already happened, and it goes all the way forward to take care of everything that is to come. But in, in that statement itself, in this identity of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, there's another character introduced, and that's God. Who is God? Well, that's also addressed in the first angel's message. It says, worship him who created heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in it. God's identity is creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's incredibly important that we hang on to that truth, because if God is not creator, then, then Jesus makes no sense. What he did makes no sense. If God did not create a world that fell into sin, then what in the world is Jesus doing as Savior? It, it, it doesn't hold up. So we've got to hang on to both of those pieces. But then just those two pieces alone is just nice information if, in fact, there isn't a judgment day. What is the judgment day? Judgment day is the day that God restores the original order. And the judgment day is not just a day of fear for us because Jesus saves in the middle. So these are the three pieces of the victory of God. And they're so important that I want you to hang on to them. Everlasting gospel, creator God, hour of judgment. It's so important, I want you to say it with me. So here we go. You can, you can mumble it into your mask as we go here. So here we go. Everlasting gospel, 
Creator God, hour of judgment. Now, it's not exactly the order they show up in the first angel, but that's, that's the way we've talked about it. All right, this is the victory of God. And remember, in each of these pieces, God achieves this great work without our help because, I mean, we can't create ourselves, right? We just received our lives as a gift of grace from God. We receive it by grace. And salvation. We really didn't do much to help Jesus, did we? In fact, we kind of were the ones working against him. And that night when he wanted us to help him, we fell asleep. You know, that's just kind of how much help we've been. But yet Jesus achieves it for us anyway, and we receive the forgiveness by grace. And then at the end, now we want to be on God's side, but the truth is, how many of you can overcome the forces of darkness? It's, it's not in us to do. We need God to reestablish the original order, and we will receive the kingdom by grace. We can be a part of his work, but he achieves the victory. So, so those, are the, those are the three big points of the victory of God. But now we move on to the second angel. And I have told you that, that the second angel, I believe, represents the failure of man. Now let me preface that briefly before I read it. First of all, we've got to understand that our fallen condition is real. We're not okay at a very deep level. In fact, at a very deep level, we're a mess. And we need God and the Holy Spirit to come and be inside of us or else that mess is what will come out of us. We're, we're good at lying. We're good at deceit. And the, and the one we're best at lying to is ourselves. We lie to ourselves and we say, no, 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 no. I'm fundament fundamentally at a very deep level. I really want good. And we use that as a cover for all kinds of selfishness. It's only when the Spirit of God is at work within us and within our communities that, that we're safe, that we're actually safe to be together. And this is a point that we were talking about last week. On the face of it, unity sounds good, but the truth is unity apart from God always leads humans to destruction. Even if it looks good at first, even if its stated purpose is good, if it's godless in time, it will create more harm than good. And this is hard for us because isn't it so much easier when we all just get along? But that dynamic of let's all just get along has always been a formula for disaster. Everybody hates that person in the board meeting that just is a thorn in everybody's flesh. And, I, and some people do that just to be a thorn. But, but the truth is we get into more trouble through groupthink than we ever do through independent thought. And that's because of this reality of this fallen condition that sits at our heart. So let's go to the text, Revelation 14, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Okay, so here's what I'm talking about when I read this. Babylon represents the failure of man. And, and so this kingdom, Babylon, that was the one that conquered the kingdom of Judah, it seems so strong. And Nebuchadnezzar, its king, was so proud of, of Babylon that I had built. But the truth is, even this mighty kingdom of Babylon only existed in strength because God enabled it to. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute here today. 
And secondly, it would only last through Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and then his grandson. In the generation of his grandson, the thing would be conquered. These things of human construction that look so powerful and amazing. You ever seen something you thought would last forever fall apart before your eyes? This is what it means that Babylon has fallen. Babylon always falls. So I want to give you a working definition for when I say Babylon, what I'm talking about as we go forward. And this will be very relevant next Sabbath as well. So here it is. Babylon represents any attempt by humanity to control or order the world without God. Babylon represents any attempt by humanity to control or order the world without God. Now this is a problem because the world needs control and the world needs order. It's full of chaos. And so invariably people will group themselves together to try to bring order and control on this chaotic world. The problem is we're fallen at our core. And if God is not at the center of what is bringing order and control, what will come with order and control is oppression and destruction and great evil. It happens again and again in world history. The trick is to keep God at the center of it. And we'll talk about this again next Sabbath in a way that hits pretty close to home. But at least for this week, let's reflect on this reality. We see this going on in this political season. We see chaos all around us and you see one group saying this is absolutely the answer to all things and the other group saying this is absolutely the answer to all things. Support us. Believe in us. Now it's really easy depending on which side of this you're on to see everything wrong with the other side's view but be completely blind to what's wrong on your side. A good example of this happened on my Facebook feed. If you're a Facebook person and you have a variety of friends, you know you have people who feel very strongly. And I had one of those events take place where I had two posts, one right after the other. One absolutely strong on one side, the other absolutely strong on the opposite side. And all the comments on the one side, yes, yes, brother, you're right, absolutely. And the next post that said, they're all crazy, every comment, yes, 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 you're exactly right. These echo chambers happening side by side with this complete inability to see and realize that, that the issue is much bigger. It reminds me of, of what I think is one of the, the, the greatest sarcastic moments in all the Bible. And it takes place in the book of Job after Job's friends have been explaining to him how surely what happened to you has to be your fault. And he says, doubtless you are the only people who matter and wisdom will die with you. I feel like you could plug that in on the comments on either one of those posts that I saw on my face. Doubtless you guys see it all. Be happy in your confidence. But there's an awful lot of smart people who don't agree with you. Maybe that's something good for us to keep in mind. We all have blind spots. We all have sacred cows. We all have the non-negotiables, you know. Oh, no, everything's on the table. And then you bring something up. Well, that's not on the table. We all have those things. We're going to do a little biblical history review today. 
Just a little look at the story of the Old Testament up to Jesus. And one of the things I want to say to you as we take a look at that today is is this. Just because a group is called by God doesn't mean that they can't fail. But at the same time, just because a group fails doesn't mean they aren't called by God. I think the right attitude for us to take as we go into this is the the attitude of humility. There's tensions that happen in the church. There's disagreements that take place in the church. And there's a classic example, another one of the Bible's sarcastic moments. It's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 10. Paul is is making this comment to the ones in the Corinthian church that, that he's struggling with. He says, okay, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. All we did was come there and teach you about Jesus, but clearly you know more than we do about it. We got to hang on to some measure of humility in our hearts, especially at a time when when it's hard to find anywhere. I think Micah 6.8 is the attitude we want. So this is what we want to hang on to. He hath showed ye thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? Here's the formula. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think if we keep this in mind, this will help us as we take this review of history uh, to, not, uh, to not put ourselves up here in judgment on them. Because we might just find out actually we are them. But let's take a little look at biblical history and the callings of God and the failings of his people. But here's the thing. Hang on because there's hope in the end. Let's go all the way back. Adam and Eve. Called by God. In fact, called to life by God. Literally crafted with his hands. Made in perfection. Yet, so easily seduced by lies about God. That's one of the realities of of human nature is that we're easily seduced by a lie we want to believe particularly if it's something that causes us to think more highly of ourselves. And I got to tell you, we're being played by that right now by both sides. We're being told things we want to believe, whether they're true or not. Watch out for that. We're easily seduced by lies. And isn't it interesting how fast at the end of creation, God declares it very good, how fast it goes from very good to very bad. It's just not that long afterward and the first murder pops up. It goes bad fast. The humans before the flood. Now this is an interesting, uh, an interesting reality. We often think that, that the primary reason that there is so much uh, rebellion against God is because people have a hard time believing that God actually exists in our day. And that's true enough. But I want to suggest to you that it's, it's a myth to think that the knowledge, the absolute knowledge of the existence of God is enough to make us worship. And, and as evidence for that, I put before you the people before the flood. There was no issue as to whether or not God was real for them. And there's a couple of reasons for this. According to Ellen White, anyway, it, the, the Garden of Eden was still on the earth 
up until sometime before the flood. You could literally go on a trip there and see the angel standing with the sword. So there was, there was no question as to whether or not God existed. And if, if that's not good enough for you, there's the reality that Adam himself lived for 930 years. You could just go ask him. Basically a thousand years, the original guy is still there. But people had already decided to rebel against God even while the first man was still alive. So, so don't get it in your head that all it takes for people to believe in God is the sense of his existence. Maybe we even use that term wrong. We say believe in God as though it's either believe in God that he exists or he doesn't. But it's really more about actually allow him to bring direction to your life. Now promises were made to these people before the flood. Genesis 3.15, there was the promise that redemption would come somehow through the birth of a child who would be a redeemer. But the knowledge of the existence of God did not stop the people from rebellion. In fact, the Bible says by the time it got to just before the flood, the intent of every human heart was evil all the time. The flood comes, Noah and his family come through, but it doesn't take that long after the flood for the same cycles to start up again. And it's not very far down the road, Noah plausibly still alive, hard to know exactly the timing of all of those things, but the Tower of Babel takes place where the peoples of the world get together to make a name for themselves, to create a, a reality of control and order apart from God. That's what they're trying to do. And we talked about this last Sabbath. God, in His mercy, comes and divides them because their unity is a unity to destruction. And He comes and divides them. And He calls a man a man named Abraham who's living in a region that will later be called Babylon. He calls him out of Babylon. We're going to talk about that some next Sabbath. He calls this man Abraham and he promises him that through his line, through his descendants, he will have a child and through that child's descendants, God will win the victory. But Abraham's getting old. And Abraham's wife is getting old. And this great man, Abraham, who acts at the call of God, who moves his entire family, who travels to this land of promise where he owns nothing, this great man of faith starts to question the promise of God. You've never done that, right? Starts to question the promise of God. And starts to look for other ways to fulfill the promise. And they come up with this idea, maybe God had a surrogate mother in mind. Well, maybe God would have mentioned that if it was the plan. So Hagar has a son. And it becomes the source of endless tension and pain. Finally, the promise is fulfilled through Sarah like God said it would be. But the tension that came from that exists to our day. A couple points to note here. Being called does not prevent failure. Sometimes the call of God is on your life and you know it's on your life and you still fail. 
And how a group ends up is no proof they were never called at the beginning. It's, it's the idea of seasons. Kind of funny, you look behind me here, you, you see it's, it's fall, right? It's the only place in Florida where it's fall. It just makes the point well enough, doesn't it, that most of us didn't come from here. We came from places where leaves change color and pumpkins grow. We brought that culture to a land that stays green. Anyway, there are seasons. There are things that happen in the life of an individual or a community. But let's go on with this history. The grandson of Abraham, he had... There was, there was Jacob and there was his brother Esau. But the promise was to come through Jacob. But the thing about Jacob, this, this, this son the continuing the line of the prophets, his name actually means one who is deceitful. And he really is. He defrauds his brother. He lies to his father. He lies to, to pretty much everybody he ever encounters. But he gets lied to as well. It's a crazy story. He ends up with two wives that are sisters. One of them he loves, one of them not so much. That doesn't go well. He has 12 sons who become the patriarchs, which we kind of reserve that word for people who were of great upstanding character. But you really read their stories, and these are rather dubious guys, these 12 patriarchs. Now, on his deathbed, this Jacob, who now is called Israel and who will give his name to the nation of the people that will arise from the patriarchs, on his deathbed, Jacob will prophesy about Judah a promise from God that through Judah a Redeemer will come. Well, let's talk about Judah for a minute. He has a whole chapter in Genesis dedicated to his own questionable behavior. Questionable behavior that, in fact, becomes a part of the lineage of the Redeemer who is to come. Now, there's a hint there in the grace of God. Because human failure comes into so many stories, yet God's victory is still promised. Now, here's another interesting thing about Judah. He's actually the fourth son of the unloved wife. How in the world did he get the promise? Well, it was because Reuben, the oldest, was even more of a rascal. And Levi and Simeon went out and killed a bunch of men. So, Judah. These are the patriarchs. A lot of failures. Then there's the whole slavery in Egypt. And a deliverance by God, miraculous deliverance by God, with Moses. They go through the sea. They come to Mount Sinai, the presence of God is there. He speaks the Ten Commandments to them. They're overwhelmed by the reality of God. Moses goes up onto the mountain, stays a little too long, and after 40 days, they're bowing down before a golden calf, rebelling, failing again. God brings them to the brink of the promised land. He says, let's go in. They say, no, we can't. They're too strong fail. God says, all right, your generation dies in the wilderness. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. Finally, the children of that generation that was delivered goes into the promised land with Joshua. And the Bible says, throughout Joshua's days, they were faithful. (laughs) But that's just one lifetime. 
And after that, they become vile and decadent. And they suffer at one another's hands. And they suffer at the hands of those outside of them. The people of God fail again. Finally, a man named David comes into the picture. And he's called a man after God's own heart. So we can bet everything he did was all right, right? And there's a promise that of his line will come the one who will rule. And David will do a lot of really good stuff and write a whole bunch of really good psalms. And he will also kill a man for his wife. And he will number the people and bring a curse on Israel. What does that mean? Well, that was all about him trusting in the strength of the army rather than in the power of God. Lots of good, but lots of fail. The kingdom goes on. It survives Solomon. Solomon was a remarkable leader and created this amazing nation, but he kind of failed at the end of his time as well. His son Rehoboam will actually speak extremely unwisely in a way that causes the kingdom to break apart into the northern kingdom which will be called Israel and the southern kingdom which will be called Judah. And on the face of it you look at it and you're like well that was that was another example of how everything would have been better if it stayed together. But here's the thing when they went to, to get ready to fight to try to bring it back together God said no let this happen. This has to happen. Why? Once again, God is dividing for the sake of preserving. It's a disturbing notion, but the truth is the northern tribes were so committed to a course counter to God that he could not keep them connected together. And these sons of Israel, well, we might have expected it from Dan's kids. He was a problem child from the start, right? But these are the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, even the children of the good boy will be part of the tribes that will be destroyed and lost. And then you have Judah. The people of God called out of the people of God, but even Judah couldn't stay right. So the Bible says in the most amazing words, God says, I sent my servant Nebuchadnezzar. God took hold of a pagan king. He said, I need you to come in here and destroy Judah and Jerusalem and the temple because they've made it about themselves. And if this keeps going on the way it is, then my plan will be ruined. And in a most unexpected move, he reaches in through the hands of, of the Babylonians and through Nebuchadnezzar and takes out of Judah every salvageable person he can find and carries them away to captivity. They thought they were the cursed ones, they were actually the blessed ones. Carries them to Babylon. He won't leave them there, but he takes them there where he can break them of their idolatry. Babylon will fall according to the prophets. The Medes and the Persians will come. They will be allowed to go back, and they will go back with a man named Zerubbabel, a descendant of David. Now, here's what's interesting about the name Zerubbabel. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a Babylonian name. It means son of Babel. It means son of Babylon. He brings the people back. 
They come back to the land. It's kind of a false start. They sort of get going, but not great. Ezra and Nehemiah come along. The temple gets rebuilt. They rebuild the walls. Ezra and Nehemiah institute some really tough regulations that we as Gentiles kind of chafe at when we read those books. But they're trying to reestablish something. And they get it reestablished. And there is some degree of faithfulness as they try to go forward. But it won't be long before the voices of the prophets will disappear. Malachi will be the last voice. And then there'll be 400 years of silence. And in that time will rise a group called the Pharisees. Now, we love to pick on the Pharisees, but here's the thing about the Pharisees. They really badly wanted to do all the things that God expected them to do. So much so that they spent time inventing rules to protect laws, to protect... I mean, they they had so many steps that, again, they turned it into something about themselves. In their desperate desire to be faithful, they destroyed the faith. The Pharisees prayed their whole lives for the coming of the Messiah. But when the Messiah came, they missed him because he didn't come the way they expected him to come. See what happens when it's all about you, your plan, your thought, your chart, your order. So they had him killed, which was for the first time ever they agreed with the Sadducees on something. So Jesus brought them together on that point, at least. So let's recap this story up to Jesus. Humans failed from a perfect start. They failed in light of direct evidence of God. They failed in the restart after the flood. They failed in waiting for the promise. They failed as the chosen people. They failed as divinely anointed kings. They failed after return from Babylon. They failed to recognize Jesus. Does that pretty well sum it up? Yet still, despite it all, they were still the people of God. And yet, despite always failing, they were still the people through whom God would win his victory. Even though God's people always fail, it is still through them that God gains his victory. How did he do it? Well, since none of us can get it right, he came and got it right for us. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus became human and won the victory that we always lose. That's how it happened. This is the great victory of God that sits in the middle of this story of failure. And, and what about Israel? What about all this craziness? Okay, yes, all that craziness. But you know what Israel did? They preserved the story. Even the story of their failure, they preserved. 
And it was because of the preservation of the story that when Jesus came, he could be recognized and we could believe in him because of the story that led up to his coming. Jesus could have come anywhere in the world and died for the sins of the world and nobody would have known. But if it wasn't for the story of Israel, there'd be no way to recognize who he was. God's people accomplished his purpose even though they kept failing and making bad decisions. Now I'd like for that to give you a little hope. On the one hand, we'd like to think we accomplished God's purpose because we keep doing things right. But that's not really what history says, is it? And this is a truth even in the context of the church. And that's something we're going to talk about next Sabbath. But the point I want you to get out of this, don't put your eyes on the things that humans keep creating. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, we do have to try to organize. We do have to try to control things. We do have to try to work together. But don't be crushed every time something that you thought was really good falls apart again. It's the nature of human things. But no matter what falls apart, God will not be defeated. He will still bring the story to a victorious conclusion. And we will still have the chance to be a part of what he's doing. It's easy to look at the stories of failure in Israel and say everybody was terrible, but they weren't. Everybody wasn't terrible. There were individuals making good choices. Daniel, classic example, stands for what is right even in a time when no one else does. Elijah. Elijah's so sure he's the only one left that still believes. He, he complains to God, I'm the only one left. And God says, ha, I got 6,000 of them out there. You can be faithful. We can choose that. But it only works if we keep our eyes on Jesus. If we stay humble and stay confident only in Him and we're not crushed whenever something that we were hoping or some person that we were looking to turns out they have a weak side. We know this is true. We've got to determine to be available for God's purpose whenever we can. Now, I want to talk about seasons again. I want to close with this. There are seasons in the life of everything. There have been seasons in the life of Adventism. There was the Battle Creek season. Everything that was anything important about Adventism took place in Battle Creek, Michigan years ago. Go there today and you would have no idea that was ever true. There's still a good church there, but not all the other things. Tacoma Park, Maryland used to be the center of everything Adventist. Go there today, there's still a church, but it's not what it was. There's seasons 
Even the seasons in Orlando have changed. There have been eras in Orlando where different churches in this region played more prominent roles. Some of the churches today in this region that are playing prominent roles didn't even exist in those days. It doesn't mean because that season came and went that the work of God has failed. What it means is we've got to be sharp when the season is an up season. When it's time to do the work of God, when the opportunity is ours, we've got to be focused and do it. Now, it's not about whether or not the Force Lake Church lasts a thousand years. Obviously, we're hoping that the Lord will be here an awful lot before that. Even the next 50 years, it's about what are we doing right now in this season of opportunity that we have. If we will all keep our eyes on Jesus, we do justly, love mercy, and maintain a humble spirit, then we can accomplish everything God has called us to do in this season. But we don't have to worry about how it all comes together at the end because God has already decreed it. And all we have to do is be faithful to Him. And he will bring it together. So I want to challenge you. We don't have to worry about whether God can bring it all together. That's the promise. But what we do have the chance to do is be faithful in our day. We don't have to worry about whether we do everything right. We can even afford failure because God will still achieve His purpose. But wouldn't you rather have spent your time being faithful to God's calling in your day than creating something that's just ultimately going to fall? Babylon is fallen. But God has given us the chance to be faithful in our day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us keep our eyes on your victory and the reality of the victory of Jesus and the reality of God as creator and the promise of your return to set everything back. We see so many things around us that have fallen. And it's easy for us to lose heart. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And in this day, in this time that we have, in this season, help us to do your work. Not worrying about our legacy, but only looking to build up your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.